Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. All right, everyone. Welcome to the July 2022 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Journal Club. And I'm Rimley Crow. Today I'm joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Dave Page, Jeff Rollman, and Dr. Bill Toon. I'm going to draw your attention to a new thing that is in our chat right now. So we have a PCRF YouTube channel and we need subscribers in order to get a much friendlier URL. So please feel free to click and if you like what you see, go ahead and subscribe. Now I'm gonna invite my colleagues to the stage as we are going to talk about today's article. So as a reminder, the name of the article we're reviewing is Falls in Older Adults Requiring Emergency Services, Mortality, Use of Healthcare Resources, and Prognostication to One Year, which was published just recently in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. And of course, this article is paired with another, this discussion is paired with an article written uh, by Dr. Tony Fernandez in EMS World called Journal Watch. And we encourage all of you to check out the article at emsworld.com. It'll be under the category of education and training. So thank you all again for joining us. As a reminder, and as always, you can use that chat feature on your screen to type in questions and comments about the work as we go, and we'll bring them into the conversation with us. All right. With that, let's kick it off and let's talk about falls. Um, this paper actually addresses what is a pretty big deal for older adults. And if we look into the introduction, their statistics, scary ones, like as many as one in four adults fall each year, and this is older adults, and that we all know it's a really common reason for EMS transport. Falls can also be linked to really bad outcomes like death within one year, and there's this question out there of, is it the fall a signal of poor or declining health, or is a fall something that leads to a more rapid downward trajectory? So there's been tons of work on, on fall prevention, but there has been less work on predicting outcomes for patients who fall that can help guide clinicians in some things to prevent these negative outcomes. And the authors of this study sought to evaluate subsequent healthcare use and mortality among a cohort of community dwelling older adults, which they define as greater than or equal to 65 years of age, who were transported by EMS after a fall. And so Tony, let's, let's talk a little bit about the methods here. Um, why don't we kick it off with talking about what was the study design and, and where did it take place? Yeah, so this was really interesting. And I uh, want to say good morning to, or good afternoon to everyone and thanks for joining us today. Um, <clears throat> so this was a planned secondary analysis of a retrospective cohort study, right? So this is, um, this that's a mouthful, but essentially what they mean is this is something, this was not their initial uh, stab at the data. This is something where they looked this second time with a new uh, research question um, and they use this cohort to answer that question. And this was a, a really interesting cohort. We'll get, uh, they they looked at a cohort from 
the northwestern United States. So they looked at the mainly Portland, Oregon, um, and Seattle, Washington, uh, combined with some rural areas uh, in rural counties. Um, so this is this is not only exclusive to the Northwest. When we get uh, into it a little bit, we'll find out that um, these data are, are are certainly not the not new. Uh, the, the the data folks were recruited from January first to December 31st from 2011. Um, so what is really interesting about this data set is they were able to use Medicare claims data and combine it with a whole host of data sets. Um, it was, it's really interesting how they were able to combine uh, trauma registry data with uh, uh, mortality databases and then the Medicare claims data and link it up. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that uh, in a minute. But I, I, I thought that this was a really interesting use of uh, a cohort. Yeah, I, I think this was also a really interesting use of a cohort. And so though it's located in the Northwestern US, it, it covers a pretty broad cross section of seven counties, 44 EMS agencies and 51 acute care hospitals. I also like how they took the additional step of not just including the primary destinations, but they went one step further and looked at where patients got transported to if they were transferred. Yeah, and that is, I mean, as you and I are intimately aware, that's that's exceedingly difficult to um, not only just have outcome data, it's, we're getting to a place where we have outcome data more and more readily, which is great, but uh, that's from the initial institution. Once, once folks get transferred, a lot of times we'll lose them, and they were able to uh, not only just have the initial institution, but the transferring institution, which I thought was uh, really fantastic. Absolutely. And, and speaking of losing and losing to follow up, I think that the use of the Medicare claims data was a really innovative way to make sure that patients don't get lost to follow up. They only included people who were under Medicare for the entire study period. And so they used one year of data prior to the study period and one year of data post study period to look at healthcare utilization and get a better feel for does a fall change that trajectory of how healthcare is getting utilized in addition to the mortality data. Yeah, and using the Medicare database, it's it's obvious that this is an older population. Um, they they looked at patients who were 65 years or older, um, who were specifically with uh, Medicare fee for service coverage. So um, that has some implications there. But the the population was like like you said, they had to have data not only the year after ambulance transport, but prior to. So we have some really interesting data about history and comorbidities that you don't often get when you're looking at, at pre-hospital care research. Yeah, and as we're talking about who was included in the study, so in addition to the age limit being 65 or older with Medicare fee-for-service, they did some important exclusion. So their interest in this particular study was community dwelling, and that can sometimes be a hard thing to define, but for this particular study, they excluded patients who were living in a skilled nursing facility, those who were on hospice, and those with and so we should probably spend a little bit of time talking about what is pulsed and what are the implications of excluding that population. Yeah, and I I, I feel like we scared uh, Dave Page away. I'd love for him to come back sure and did. join us with this conversation about pulse, um, particularly. But um, so, <laughs> hey, Dave. Welcome back. Generally, researchers who know a lot about statistics do scare me. So you're both very scary people, just just to, to be clear. But um, I had popped in because of the community dwelling versus patients that are 
uh, aren't necessarily in sort of care facilities or in situations where there are caregivers uh, programmed to come and visit. And I think it's a it's really important to talk about that difference between um, just all comers, people who are maybe discharged or living at home, living in family situations who might have a different access to care. Mm -hmm. And um, th this is this is a really important population. If um, any of us in EMS know that the the frequency of calls to this particular type of facility, type of uh, interaction with this this group of um, uh, community dwelling older adults is a big deal, and particularly these you know uh, falls and or just need to put the patient back into bed. Um, result in non-transports that get to be very dangerous. So the, this particular uh, population and, and, and then just this slice of the, the older set is actually really important. Also, for those that, those that don't know about PULST, P-O-L-S-T, because it's an acronym and everybody loves acronyms in EMS, um, this is Provider Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. So these are um, limited interventions or comfort measures, uh, end of life uh, directives, or uh, some sort of care plan that may or may not involve some fairly major interventions being withheld or uh, some type of specific uh, interventions provided. So it, it, it's important to kind of know that that subset was, it was involved. And that's important because of hospice. Uh, in, in some cases, these data could skew our results because of patients who are extremely sick, who look very uh, end of life sick, but, um, uh, but maybe that's a kind of a planned uh, intervention. So that's maybe something that this particular person is already in process for, and that it can tend to wreak havoc on on trying to figure out wh whether or not we were learning something about this population. Absolutely. And they said specifically to talk about the pulse, they, they hey, Jeff, welcome. So we were just talking about, um, as you heard, the, the pulse, and I was going to get into um, their specifics with the pulse. I, I, I did want to just, I, I thought that it was really uh, interesting the way that the authors phrased um, why they they use just community dwelling uh, older adults, and they said that was to minimize the effect of patients with different goals of care. I thought that was a great and very nice way to put that. Um, and for the pulse, uh, they they look specifically at those whose pulse forms identified that they wanted limited interventions or comfort measures only. Um, so this is certainly a population that um, uh, is. It was something that was the healthier population who uh, did not necessarily want uh, so much intervention if they did need to be resuscitated. First of all, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Great to be on with all of you. I just wanted to add in two quick points about the PULST since there's so many acronyms out there. I mean, EMS, we love, we love using acronyms. And PULSE, of course, vary a bit state by state. But what I thought it was interesting that they excluded all of these potential patients um, who had limited interventions or comfort measures only. A pulse is not a DNR, whereas a DNR only comes into play in those 
resuscitations, pulse is much more broad, can vary a ton. I don't know the specifics in Oregon, but many folks that are older have these, but they don't necessarily come to play until closer to the end of life. They'll have these preemptively. So I thought it was interesting that they excluded them straight away. Um, so just something to keep in mind as we analyze this. And then another important issue, as you were talking about community dwelling, I mean, really important to look at this population since of course, very different from institutionalized, but with Medicare data, they can always, something I think about a lot, we go to assisted living facilities often as EMS providers. Those generally are not paid for by Medicare. Those are paid by families or private sources, other types of non-Medicare insurance. And unfortunately, there's no way of really knowing. So even though we might not consider that community, that's definitely still in the data set. So just wanted to point that out as well. No, and those are great points. And something that I like that the authors did and we'll talk about as we get to the results is they compared the population that got excluded through their criteria to the population that was ultimately included. And they're looking for those key things like do the demographics change? Is one of these groups way younger than the other group? Are there any other factors that might get us to different results because of these exclusions? Yeah, I mean, they really did. They did a, a great job with their data analysis. And let's talk a little bit about kind of how, how they came up with their analytical data set. Um, so as, as everyone on this call, uh, on this podcast knows, uh, Remley and I talk about some of the difficulties with combining data sets uh, often, and they, they went uh, a step above. So we talked about some of the data sets that they, that they combined. They had two state registries, they had two state hospital discharge databases, um, two state death certificate databases, uh, the pulse registry, and then they and then the the original EMS database and the and the Center for Medicare Medicaid database. So this was a this was a wealth of data that they need to somehow combine to run their analysis. And they used a mixture. They so first they used probabilistic linkage. So uh, we're not going to dive too deep into probabilistic linkage, and I'm sure everyone on the call is is happy about that. Um, but what what you do in probabilistic linkage is essentially you are you're using a couple of data fields to get a a, a probability that th that these folks are the same the same per person or patient, and then um, you set a cut point for that probability, and and above that cut point, that's that's where they match. Um, they also use deterministic the if maybe I'll say that right deterministic deterministic linkage. There you go. Um, and that's matching uh, exclusively on um, so things like name, date of birth, uh, um, these, these identifying fields where you can uh, I know that it's a one-on-one -on -one match. Um, so both of those very sophisticated and uh, not not easy lifts by any means. Um, so yeah, that, that that was a great way to combine these data sets. I I also liked. Um there and I, I did not know that these existed so maybe some EMS providers uh, might might join me in looking these up but um, there they included variables not just like age and and gender and what their index moment their first fall was but it's the Charleston comorbidity index the CCI and then this modified frailty index 
Um, so these, to me, are are indices that we are, are don't calculate. We don't. I don't. I've never heard of them before, and may actually be very helpful in in field decision making if they were, you know, somehow available to us. This uh, comorbidity index and the frailty index are, are things that have been used in the past uh, in other studies, so they've been validated by somebody else, and they sought to include them in here as, a, as another measure of sort of what was baseline and then what happened after the fall. So I think those are, uh, that's a little bit of homework for us to look into whether or not that's useful in other ways. Absolutely, and, and as you mentioned, those are used quite frequently in research. They used a third index, which I had not heard of, and that was the claims-based disability measure. Uh, and Tony, I don't know if you've heard of this one, but it, it was essentially looking at what is the probability of serious disability, and they take, it ranges from zero to 100%, and they take 11% to indicate that a patient is likely to experience limited self-care or be completely disabled. Yeah, and I had not heard about uh, that indices before, and I, I love it. I think that it's it's great when uh, authors put something in their paper that I, I've not used before, but can totally see it used for um, in future research. And we'll talk about, uh, at, well, we, we can talk about it now, is that one of the other things that I thought was really great um, was they, they looked at injury severity scores, right? but they didn't always have an injury, injury severity score. So where they didn't have an injury severity score, they used a function in STATA, which I am very familiar with. Um, I, I love STATA, that is my hammer, um, and to use ICD-9 diagnosis codes and transform them into an injury severity measure. Um, I did not know that code existed, but I'd like to thank the authors because I believe I'll probably be using that um, in the near future. And for those of us who need to translate what Tony just said, um, Stata is actually a software package, like a computer program that that developer or that uh, statisticians and researchers use to crunch their statistics. And sometimes code, meaning uh, actual instruction to the to the program to do a particular calculation, are these are sort of preset, uh, maybe uh, uh, I guess uh, little mini programs within there that are using, in this case, the ICD-9 code uh, to calculate an IS, an injury severity score. I think I translated most of that now into- well, What's right. an ICD-9 code? Um, oh, right, what is an ICD-9 code? <laughs> actually, um, you probably know this better than I do, but ICD-10 codes are actually the ones that are used. ICD-9 codes are the old code that um, hospitals and healthcare systems use to uh, properly identify the diseases and then bill for them. And so this is the, the nomenclature of the diagnosis. Yes? Yes, and at the time these data were collected, so it's important to think about what was the time frame of this study. In 2011, ICD-9 would have been the standard. So this is just one way of grouping together a lot of different diagnoses into meaningful yeah, and a great way to deal with uh, missing data where, where 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 it may exist. And they they did a lot of of, of missing data um, fixes, let's call them, uh, in in this paper. They did multiple imputation, which is is fascinating. Um, essentially, multiple imputation looks for uh, like cases in the data set, 
and they will fill in missing data with those like cases and they they develop a bunch of data sets um, doing this and then they each data set is analyzed and the results are combined um, it's really interesting really detailed uh, and we won't get into it too much other than to know that they didn't just accept missing data uh, and and move on or exclude those cases um, they tried to they tried to make missing data complete using other cases that look very similar Absolutely. And they use some interesting methods when, you know, when it comes to dealing with missing data, especially as you get into the, they show that the missingness range from zero to 28%, just depending on which element. And so using something like multiple imputation, as you get to the one in four cases are missing something, uh, it can be a really powerful way of just, if, if we analyze this a couple of different ways and we're getting the same result, then we have a little more confidence that the result we see is going to be consistent and repeatable. Yeah, and um, multiple imputation has been validated over and over and over again. Um, yeah, it is, it's, it's a really sophisticated way to deal with um, missing data, and I, I commend the office for their work. So their end goal was to come up with a tool that could help us predict what happens to people after a fall. Let's talk a little bit about how did they develop that prognostication tool? Yeah, so they used... Um, they used a they so one was one of their outcomes was one year mortality and then they had short-term mortality which was 30-day mortality and then they used an analysis called um, classification regression tree or a cart analysis um, and this is essentially uh, a way to develop a clinical decision rule um, based on how the patient is is presenting or some predictor variables that the patient uh, the patient has um, so it's it's you don't see this often uh, in, in in a lot of research. It was it was really fun to read about it um, and how they 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 ran this analysis um, where they came to some cutoff points for continuous variables and they also uh, did what they called a cost complexity trimming where uh, if the model was too complicated they would they would essentially omit. Um, different predictors based to maintain the fidelity of the model but while also making it less complicated um really really interesting analysis absolutely and uh you know it's nice that they use this cart analysis which i had not heard of but it makes it really simple if you're the clinician in the field trying to apply these rules there's a step-by-step flowchart that you follow versus having some really complicated regression model where it, practical applicability is much tougher. And again, yeah. they followed really rigorous methods in this development. There was a derivation and a validation data set. And you know, why would we have those two things? Well, the data used to derive the model could have something called overfitting where the model works, but only on that specific set of data. So reserving pieces of the data to test it later on help ensure that you know, if we're gonna go take this out to a different data source, we're likely to see the same performance. Uh, and then, of course, things like area under the curve, which we'll talk about, and some traditional measures of how well a tool performs, like sensitivity and specificity. And no, we won't spend tons of time going through exactly what those mean, but we can talk about them as we hit them in the results. Yep, and they followed up their card analysis with uh, something that anyone who listens to us is very familiar with, uh, uh, multivariable logistic regression, uh, to identify some independent variables that were associated so with their outcomes of interest. So yeah, the, really, really appropriate, really sophisticated analysis that was um, interesting for 
uh, stats geeks like me, and I'll speak for you, Emily. I'm sure you're interested in you reading this as well. For sure. So what do you say we, we take a look at what they found? Let's do it. Before I proceed, though, I need to make sure there's no technical errors. Are you seeing the right slide view, or are you seeing a slide sorter? Nope, nope. We're seeing your slide view, um, and we're we're on the flow chart right now. But All right, uh, then we I, I would like to before we move to results, and I do this every time. I, I just want to call in any of our panelists to see. Did you have any any other questions or any other comments that you wanted to talk about uh, specifically with the methods? I think we're the only methods. No. The answer, I think the answer is no. I think we're we're anxious to see the the results. Is what we are. <laughs> Not everybody's here for the stats. I don't understand. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move in. So, figure one is where I actually wanted to be, and that's the uh, you know first glance at who was in and who was out from this. So, ultimately, there were about ten thousand patients in the year of the study. However, after exclusions, there were 3,100 included in the analysis. And again, the authors undertook that extra step to say, was anything that we excluded really different or could it potentially influence the results? And so you can see that the bulk of exclusions happened due to not finding a matching Medicare record or not having the continuous specific type of Medicare coverage that was of interest in the study, which was the fee-for-service. When we get to the other exclusions, which Tony talked about in terms of having a pulse or um, not essentially being defined as community dwelling, that was a much smaller proportion of those who were excluded. Uh, so this is an important figure for us to pay attention to as we go into interpreting any of the other results. Now, this is kind of the drum roll moment. Of those 3,100 patients, you know, without having read this, Tony, I'm curious, how many, what would you have expected the mortality rate to be within 30 days? Yeah, so it, given that it's an older population, right, I, I, I certainly would have not expected it to be zero, um, but I was surprised by the result that, um, that we're about to announce. So. Right, and, and I, you know, for a lot of the projects that we've worked on in the past, I'm used to seeing mortality rates less than 1%, and in this case, 5% of all of the patients died within 30 days, and then when you extend that out to one year, it was 21% of all the patients. That's one in five of the patients who fell in the study died by the end of the year. And I think that's a really large number to put things in perspective. And to your point, Tony, yes, this was a definitely an older population. So they included patients who were 65 and older, but the median age of everyone included was actually 84 years. So that means half of the patients were older than 84 and half of the patients were younger than 84. Yeah, so it's definitely just, was an older population. Yeah, and just to reiterate, not only where it was, but this was an older population who was living in the community. Um, so these weren't these weren't institutionalized patients who you may expect a higher a higher death rate after a fall. These were patients who were living in the community who um, who were we were seeing this with, um, and that's uh, it's eye opening for sure. Absolutely. And so the first table always gives the you know, demographics of the population. And so some of these things again are surprising. We talked about age. The bulk of the patients, 42%, being between 85 and 94. This was also a predominantly female cohort, so 70% of the included patients were women. And then we get into this, let's just take a baseline on everybody and see what kind of comorbidities there were and some of these other indices. So Dave mentioned the Charleston comorbidity index. Uh, we see that the median score here was a three. And then we go down to the modified frailty index, the median score of two. And 
the table one goes on a little bit more, so I had to break it across slides here. But just to give an idea of your disability scale being 0.03 or 3%, remember 11% was that group that we consider to not be appropriate for self-care or to be even completely disabled. So this population at baseline was not experiencing severe disability. Um, then we look at overall use of the healthcare system, and there were not a ton of ambulance transports in the prior year or ED visits or any inpatient days for that matter. And so if anyone else has any comments on just who was in and who was out of this population, this is, this is the table that gives us that look on just what group of patients are we talking about at baseline, and then we'll walk through and we'll continue to look at, well, what are the things that happened after this? So again, here's the last section of table one looking at if there was a fracture, what bone was fractured? You can see that uh, the femur was the most implicated bone of the long bones there. Um, perhaps not surprising again in this population with falls. Um, and yeah. then we get into some of the the mortality. Yeah, and those 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 hip fractures, right? They're 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 pretty high, and we know we know the associated outcomes with with hip fractures in general. Um, Absolutely, Dave. Welcome. Well, yeah. So I had previously, I think, been very aware of hip fractures, i.e., femoral neck fractures, um, mm -hmm. being kind of a predictor of mortality within the year, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm trying to make heads or tails of this table, and maybe you can help walk us through uh how you look at tables but um i generally look at things that just jump out you know numbers that are just completely off um where you think you should be seeing one thing and you're actually seeing another so in in this particular case uh, one of the one of the the jump out numbers to me is this 365 day mortality outcomes in one year which is at 21.1 percent um, and so it isn't just a matter of um, the, the, the femoral neck fractures. It's, um, you're, you know, a, a fall with trauma. So injury was, uh, if you look at the first part of the table, injury mm -hmm. was 96% of the patients. Yep. But, but um, cardiovascular and respiratory, I, I think, uh, got mixed in there, particularly cardiovascular reasons for for falls is like 74.4%. Right. So am I to interpret that um, the mixture of a cardiovascular and um, uh, some sort of traumatic process and uh, from the fall, because most of them were actually very low level severity scores. Uh, I'm trying to find the exact percentage here, but um, generally low uh, scoring for, for injury index that um, what looks to be what looks to be like a very benign fall or not so severe fall mixed with cardiovascular or respiratory ends up being kind of the lethal combo. Um, if you skip to or uh, jump to the previous slide, uh, for people who are not being able to see this, what you see is these um, severe, serious extremity injury uh, index is looking uh, like 18%, right? 
And then up on top there for injury patterns, the minor patterns were really predominant there, 58% almost, 57.9. Is that is that your takeaway from this table? So I so think that's, go ahead, Tony. I was going to say that's a good observation, but you wouldn't really take that away from table one in and of itself, right? Because table one is just telling you what the population looked like. Um, so this is just kind of a, uh, think about this as a picture, right? This is a picture of your population, right? And then as we go through and we get to um, it, to our, our models, uh, which are really interesting, that's when you can really say that one of these, one of these uh, injuries, for instance, um, or diagnoses um, were more associated with the outcome or not. Uh, right now, you're just kind of looking at what, what's there. Yeah, and I think this does generate the input for those models to get to those kinds of conclusions. But in and of itself, there, you know, there's nothing but a signal here that, hey, maybe there's something to look at. There, there seems to be a high proportion of this or a high proportion of that. But it's definitely not telling us the cross-tabulation of what's going on. Uh, but well, it does bring to my mind the, the question of, you know, what came first, the fall or the cardiovascular issue? Or what came first, the stroke or the fall? And, and that's a really tough thing to tease out in this kind of a data set. Yeah, I, I just think um, just in terms of um, how or why people fall, mechanical fall versus some other comorbidity, uh, these numbers seem pretty high, 74 to 74% of, of these patients were cardiovascular patients, and yep. then 50% had a either metabolic or endocrine uh, comorbidity in there. Uh, and, and the neurologic non-dementia to me sounds like it's the it's the stroke and the respiratory is another one that's just you know you're, you're seeing high numbers i don't know how yeah. they teach out psychiatric and behavioral at nearly a third also that was kind of an interesting number to me really high numbers and and this is again it's an older a median age of about 84 so i mean it's an older population they're gonna they're gonna have some of these comorbidities but i do agree like some of these were um we're certainly eye popping yeah. jeff i'm dying to look at the, at the results here but i think i think jeff is going to have some other comments too sorry about that i was having trouble unmuting myself but um i just wanted to continue on what dave was saying and then actually going back to one slide earlier this Charleston comorbidity index. So that's a retrospective, and that's looking at um, diagnoses, conditions that these patients had before that index fall visit. So the fact that it was three, that could be multiple minor conditions or one very serious condition, but it's not, looking at the general population, the average is like zero or one. The fact that it's three is uh, pretty high. I mean, this is definitely an older, population, but we could see about a third of them, they're not coming into the hospital with heart attacks, but about a third have had a history of an MI sometime that has showed up in their prior record. So these patients aren't necessarily sick now, but they have been sick in the past. And then when we look at these diagnoses, I think it all goes together on the, on the next slide too, that these cardiovascular issues aren't necessarily happening now, but they definitely come up. And the physicians that are maybe deciding whether to admit the patient or discharge them, they're realizing, hey, these patients are pretty sick. Maybe we need to keep them. And we know, I mean, this whole idea of the chicken or the egg, but 
the cascade once they're admitted, they're in the hospital, they maybe go to a nursing facility after. It's tricky to tease it all out. So I really commend the authors for trying to, for giving us so much data because we usually don't have all this retrospective. Yeah. I love it too. It's sort of like a car cardiac arrest research. Um, uh, jump back for a second, Remley, if you could, because this this comorbidities index, you know, giving it a number three versus from one to five, that's that's um, interesting, but not that interesting to me. When I when I look at um, myocardial infarction as as one of the, you know, there's 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 three or four, maybe five things that are jumping out at nearly 30%. So myocardial infarction, dementia, congestive heart failure, renal insufficiency, diabetes, COPD. There's just this, um, that, that those diseases seem to be the, the uh, cocktail mix of this you know, population of folks that were really, uh, you know, at least in this slice of life, having, uh, being found to have all these these major problems but but behavioral psychiatric was not on there and so uh, then when you look at the the next table that says what were they diagnosed with what was the diagnosis category in the hospital nearly 30 percent had this psychiatric behavioral component uh, which is sort of a it, it was not a comorbidity to begin with not in the general sense so You'd I'm, have to I'm, also read up on the Charleston Comorbidity Index and find out if that is a category that would be included. And here, for me, it's not necessarily shocking to see psychiatric behavioral. We also need to think about what codes got rolled up into that. So we talked about ICD-9 codes. If it's something like depression, anxiety, those things are common in older populations as well. And so right. with the oh, diagnosis okay. codes, it's super challenging to know what came from the particular visit versus what's just part of their existing medical history. And, and I think the authors did a very good job at teasing this apart because the injury at 96%, you know, that passes the gut check of, for people who follow, that should be a common diagnosis. Yeah. Nice, okay, really good information. Yeah, we uh, have a great question from Jeffrey in the audience around, you know, is there any insight from this as to whether rural geography proximity could play a role in outcomes? And in this particular table, I don't see anything related to you know, geogra geographic distribution, and there's several ways of classifying urban and rural, but there is, you know, a CMS way of doing that, and that would be a great area for future work. We think, or we might suspect that people who are further away from, you know, level one trauma centers and things like that, which we do see the type of initial receiving hospital here, but we can certainly see a role where access to care being in a rural environment could play an important part in this, and so that's an excellent question. And the last thing I want to highlight on table one before we move is, is my own little uh, theory here on when we look at the use of, you know, inpatient days, we see that the median number of days, so half a patient spent at least three days as an inpatient. And at the time of this writing, there was a Medicare rule, the three-day rule, curious if any of the other panelists are familiar with it or anyone in the audience, but basically the, the three-day rule said that in order to be eligible to have a visit covered to a skilled nursing facility where some people with these kinds of injuries would be best recovering, uh, you had to be admitted for at least three days first. So that number to me was not necessarily surprising that, oh, people tend to spend three days. Um, now 25% of the population actually spent more than seven days in the hospital and that would be considered you know, a longer length of stay. So these are important things to keep in mind as we start looking at 
well, how do we predict some of these longer hospital stays, higher risk of mortality, uh, greater likelihood of spending extended time in a skilled nursing facility and the like. All right, I'm gonna move on to this figure three, or figure two, excuse me, which I think has a lot of great information. We do say the picture's worth a thousand words. This is definitely one of those things. So there's the different healthcare utilization outcomes are all graphed here. And across the bottom, we have the days after that initial index 911 contact. Um, so the thing that probably sticks out to everyone right off the bat is that dark line, which is death. And we see that as we get out towards the year, the death rate keeps increasing or the total number of deaths increase. And that makes sense because we're, we're adding them across the time here. However, you see that it never really plateaus. It's a pretty steep line and, and there's not this plateau after 30 days or after that initial visit. And I think that's important. Yeah, I agree. And I think that one of the things to keep in mind uh, as we relate to death, right, is that um, age, right, increasing age is certainly a risk factor of death. And we're looking at an older population throughout the year, right, which is probably one of the reasons why this never plateaued. Um, but we, you can certainly see that uh, after the the 911 event, there's a big there's a big increase, and then it sort of uh, tapers, but not plateaus. Absolutely. And so let's take a look now to Dave's point. You know, we want to figure out what are those predictors of mortality. We kind of see some signals in Table One, but let's see what what are the ones that stood out. And Figure Three does a good job at telling us this. So going back to that decision tree and all of the lovely tree metaphors, pruning and all of that. Um, here was the end result. So the things that seemed to matter were having a respiratory diagnosis, having a serious brain injury, having baseline functional disability, or a Charleston comorbidity index of two or more. And so we can see the, if you say yes to respiratory diagnosis, you can see the 30-day unadjusted mortality is about 9%. Serious brain injury, unadjusted 30-day mortality is around 16%. And we see it at 3% for the other two, which are the baseline functional disability and those comorbidities. So it tells us that some additional information is gathered by adding in things like what kind of diagnosis and was there any um, blood on the, head, head, on the head CT or any other sort of uh, serious brain injury. And so this is something you know, we can take into the field and think about as, as we're looking at patients who have fallen. And I, th I think this is probably the most important figure in this paper. So if you're going to remember, want to take a look at this. Yeah, I agree. And it, it, we, we all know that respiratory diagnoses are important, right? And we all know that uh, falls can certainly be a sentinel event. But when you when you see them both together, um, the idea that your, your unadjusted mortality rate after one year is almost a third, um, that's, that, that, that's impactful. And so, you know, I say this is the most important graph, but is it the silver bullet? You know, is this the only thing we really need? Not necessarily. So I promised we wouldn't dwell a ton on sensitivity and specificity, but it is worth mentioning how this tool performs in the real world. So the sensitivity of this tool is about 97%, meaning that we capture 97% of the people who are going to have this outcome. And that was the specific outcome was death within 30 days. Specificity is really important because that says, you know, are we going to grab a bunch of false positives, a bunch of people who are not going to die using this algorithm? And the answer is, yeah, the specificity was low at 21%, but it all depends on what are you trying to capture. So let's think about if I'm, you know, on scene and I'm trying to determine whether or not I should transport a patient, 
I want to be really sure that I capture all of those who are possibly going to have this outcome and get them to the right care. So high sensitivity would be really important for me. Whereas, you know, taking somebody to the hospital and then getting them some diagnostic testing and finding out that, oh, well, they can go home, that's an okay outcome as well. Uh, the area under the curve for this, and, and we've talked about this before, it, it's used a lot to figure out how good a tool is at classifying patients. The area under the curve for this one is about a 0.7. And to put things in perspective, you know, 0.5 is a coin flip, so your tool is as good as flipping a quarter every time you see somebody. Um, but 0.7 is acceptable discrimination ability, so ability to classify patients correctly. Uh, and a lot of our stroke screening instruments perform at about a 0.7. So this is, this is a helpful tool. And I can go on to this. Table two here shows the different sensitivity and specificity values for the two outcomes of 30-day mortality and one-year mortality. And then there it is some multivariable modeling to give us odds ratio. So what are the odds of 30-day mortality and uh, odds of one-year mortality for these patients based on a host of different factors? So again, you know, Dave's approach here is one that I also take, read through and see if anything really sticks out to me. So an odds ratio greater than one and with the entire 95% confidence interval greater than one means that there's a, a greater likelihood or, or greater odds of the outcome. Whereas anything under one that stays entirely under one means that death is less likely or lower odds of mortality. Hey, what yeah, are your thoughts? On this table, I, you know, it immediately sort of the, the ones that jump out at the highest 2.47. So uh, two, almost two and a half times more likely to die. Um, it was the baseline disability score, which was a surprise to me. Um, so having a, uh, that disability prior to the fall is, is one of the most, uh, one of the highest indicators. The hip, the hip fracture to me is, you know, like that's the story that we've always heard. So it wasn't a huge, you know, news flash, but it is, it is kind of the, oh, okay, well, that continues to be true. And that's definitely a hip fracture will, uh, has a really poor prognosis. Here, the, the other thing that jumped out, 2.28% here for the intubation and mechanical ventilation, not a surprise. If you need to be on a ventilator, you're probably not going to do very well uh, within that year. And and the other one that wasn't a surprise to me was this cancer diagnosis as an index event. Um, the the CA diagnosis also would seem like, yeah, that's that's pretty bad. What I don't know is, or I, what I was surprised about is the dementia diagnosis, 1.64. So um, that, that seemed like a mm, interesting uh, dementia as part of this picture was a surprise. So the respiratory and the dementia are surprises to me, but uh, hip fractures continue to be lethal. Those are those are some just off the bat takeaways. Is that kind of what you guys saw in this? I think a lot of that is similar to what I picked out. It is probably worth talking about the baseline disability score because there's some nuance that's very interesting there. So when we look at the baseline disability score as a predictor of 30-day mortality, there was no statistical difference there. We can see that the confidence interval rides over one. But then when we get to the odds ratio of one-year mortality, we see that 2.5-fold increase in odds of mortality. Uh, so it's interesting to me, you know, if I'm thinking about 
did the fall cause the bad outcome, then I want the outcome to be more proximal to the event. So the 30 day mortality outcome would be something I'd be looking at here. So I think that tells us overall that having a higher baseline disability score, you know, is associated with greater odds of annual mortality or mortality within one year, but it wasn't necessarily that that relationship existed so close to the fall event itself. Jeff, what are your takeaways on this one? Sure, so one of my biggest takeaways looking at this is something that I didn't see jump out. So those first three categories, looking at prior use, so EMS use in the, in the year leading up, as well as emergency department visits and inpatient hospital days, I thought that all of those would somewhat be a predictor of mortality. If a patient is sicker, if they have more, um, if they have more problems with them, where they're calling 911 more often, going to the ED more often, spending more time in the hospital, I thought that would give them a higher risk of mortality. So I was very surprised to see that that was pretty much null, very close to one. Um, I was curious your thoughts about that. I thought it might be kind of a regression to the mean where there might be short things, that, but nothing that's consistently predictive of mortality. But that shocked me that it was not remarkable. Yeah, I also found that to be surprising. But then, you know, thinking back to table one, it's interesting that overall group was so small to begin with. There was so little utilization in the year prior that, you know, maybe this particular group that doesn't hold true. But I would be interested to see, you know, in other populations, is this true? But in general, that tells us this population coming in was relatively healthy, didn't have a high utilization, and that utilization was not associated with anything, you know, with their 30-day mortality risk. Uh, but yeah, I think that is one that also stuck out to me. Sometimes the things that are not statistically significant are equally surprising as those that are, for sure. And Tony, any additional thoughts before I move us off of table three? No, I think I think we hit them all. It, it, it's uh, we didn't we didn't talk too much about the head injury, but I think we know that you know these are folks who suffered a fall if they have an accompanying head injury. Um, that's that that that's not good news. So and and we see that play out in this table. What do you make of the point four nine on on female? Um, so half as likely to die uh, are women. And women represented 70% of the sample. Yep. So this, is that pointing towards why not report the men, the men who died then? That seems odd. So I mean, the choice of odds ratio, whichever way we want to, to show it, can be true. So if we just divide 1 over 0.54, we'll get the odds of death for males, which will be over 1 for sure. Um, so a matter of presentation there is fine. But yeah, I think. This fits with normal epidemiology, knowing that females are at lower risk for mortality. It's interesting that this still holds after an event like a fall, which you know, could be a sentinel event for many, for sure. Okay. But there's lots of things that affect that, you know, that we could hypothesize on, on in terms of compliance with care. Other, the, and this is again, you know, our comorbidities factored in. What are the other variables that might be affecting this outcome? And, and there's definitely not a short list of those. Right. And then the other interpretation of numbers that I was hoping you'd, you'd shed light on is um, a third less likely um, if you're if you had an orthopedic surgery during the index event, which would seem to indicate that 
maybe it's a surrogate, like the people who get surgery are the younger, healthier, less comorbidity folks. And if you get surgery and, it, and things tend to be repaired or, or addressed, you're going to be much less likely to die within 30 days or a year. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, so, you know, when we see an odds ratio of 0.14, that, that's pretty low. So those patients were at much less risk for death. I wonder if it reflects something about having a simple orthopedic injury versus having something more complex. Like, clearly, if there's a need for intubation or mechanical ventilation, there's more than just a simple fracture going on there. Uh, so I wonder if it has to do with the circumstances around the fall. And the authors mentioned it's sometimes challenging to pick out what kind of fall or, you know, what were the circumstances around the fall? Was it from standing? That's the goal of identifying those, but sometimes in the medical records that can be challenging to identify. Yeah, and if you, you again, these are adjusted. So this is already adjusted for age. Um, and But what we, when we take this into account, right, orthopedic surgery, it's going to be that you're going to get orthopedic surgery less often on the same day if you are, are already sick, right? And we saw on the previous page that your number of comorbidities was also significantly associated with death. So um, I would imagine that there's that these, the, if you have more comorbidities, you're going to be less likely to go into surgery, right? So they're, they're there is going to be some sense that this is a, a healthier population there. Um, but that was a really good pickup, Dave. Thanks for pointing that out. Absolutely. And Eric has an interesting comment in the chat around, could the pre-index inpatient days relate to excluding the non-community dwelling adults? So you know, after an admission, it's really common to be discharged to a skilled nursing facility, and then those patients would be excluded by definition. And that could absolutely play a role. And that's something important to consider. So, you know, having been a community dwelling adult before this uh, definitely would relate to some of those outcomes seen in the in the pre-population, if you will. Yep. All yeah, right. Now I know go ahead, Tony. No, I was just gonna say as we're wrapping up, I, I I do, you know, I think the authors did a really good job of Kind of calling out their limitations and i think this is important for research and they they as as we've all been alluding to throughout this this is this is an older study that the data are from uh 2011 and 2012 so um they they did call out that the the, the cohort is over 10 years old and um that's certainly a limitation however they they didn't uh they made a point to say that the, the care for falls hasn't changed substantially in that time um so the, their 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 definitions should still hold. Um, they talked about uh, how their model is just among older folks, and and uh, the, you know this is a this is an older population who's uh, primarily female. Um, I believe it was 70% female, and and nine there was only six percent of the population uh, would did not have race identified as white. So um, there there are certainly some limitations to that, and and um, Given the specificity uh, analysis that we talked about earlier, this probably isn't your silver bullet, um, but this is certainly something that can help guide care. Absolutely. And now I do have that unpopular task of getting us to wrap up on time. So I'll invite back any of our other panelists who have any last thoughts or uh, concern or thoughts around how we would use this information as EMS clinicians or any key takeaways that you all want to leave us with before I take us out. Dr. Toon has been quiet. There he is. Something today. Muscle shirt, which Dave dislikes, but I just ran home from the gym. So 
First thing is we need to discuss this age definition here. There's a problem with that. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. I'm surprised that it waited until this long. <laughs> well, only because I keep getting these emails and flyers about signing up for Medicare, <laughs> which means I I enter into a new uh, a new new club this coming year. So that's disconcerting. <laughs> you know, you brought up the most important thing is how do we interpret this? First of all, the study, I loved it. There's no question in the discussion you all had was was very good and, and brought out a lot of important highlights to it. So how do we take this and, you know, make it part of our educational process, you know, because geriatrics are not well covered in the curriculum at all. And um, and it is a it, it still is the largest growing group of patients we have is the, the geriatric and they do need a different approach to what's going on. So I it really makes me pause a great deal more about the simple fall. There is no such thing maybe as a simple fall, but it shouldn't be as simplistic as that. And I think somehow we have to add the the depth and breadth to the curriculum. So people have this greater appreciation and does, don't look at it just as a, a simple fall. And yes, I believe prevention is an important component of all of this. It'd be great to prevent them from falling, but that's a separate topic area. But once they have fallen, I think we need to really um, increase our index of suspicion and realize that there is a a real high chance for these people to have a negative outcome. And uh, we certainly don't want to brush off any of these people as something as simple. And, you know, you're fine. You can stay home. There's nothing to worry about. So I, I really think that that's the goal of what we need to try to do. But I did love the study. I loved the discussion. It, there was nothing I could contribute. You guys covered it very well. So thank you. And that's my closing thoughts. And I do think we really need to look at the definition of the age. That's all. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and this goes along with Ryan's point here and was part of sort of my closing remarks on this is around, uh, Jeff Rollman made the comment earlier, sometimes what we see is, is important, what we don't see. All of these patients, and this is acknowledged in limitations, were transported by ambulance to a hospital. So this is not talking about the lift assist. And that would be the other interesting side of this is, can we safely perform lift assist or can we identify the population that's safe for a lift assist where we don't initiate EMS transport? And so. There's a lot of questions around this that still need worked on. And this study starts to put together some of the pieces that say, you know, a fall can be a life altering event for an older adult. And it's something that we should take seriously in that this tool helps us start to identify some of those factors that are linked to a higher probability of a negative outcome. And with that, I think our time together has ended. It's been a really great discussion. A huge thank you again to the authors for their work on this important topic and for such rigorous methods to give us so much data on this. Uh, as a reminder for you, we will have the education podcast later this month, Friday, July 22nd. And we'll be back here on the second Monday of next month, which is August 8th. So thank you all again for listening. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, 
providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey, and ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data.